And then um, I gave Martha the hard side eye at your wedding, Pete, because <laughs> right. I couldn't figure out where I knew her from and why she looked so familiar for like an hour. <laughs> and then we were like, oh, right. We're both librarians and the librarian world is the size of a golf ball, actually. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I'm your one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and I have successfully completed 31 Revolutions Around the Sun. So, go me. Uh, Happy birthday, Pete! Thank you! Um, joining me, as always, is uh, my fellow co-host, uh, Martha Sullivan, who was a, who at least pretended to be some kind of comic book expert today in front of a group of at least 50 people. I think since you were, like, in front of the room talking, you weren't even pretending to be a comic book expert. It was your official title. Well, <laughs> the imposter syndrome runs deep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and joining us this week, we have a, another librarian on the panel. Uh, we've got Hannah Rapp. Hi, guys! Uh, tell us about yourself. <laughs> Um, I live in Chicago. I am also a librarian. Um, I work with Reader's Advisory, which is librarian jargon for helping people find books they will love, and Teen Services, which is more self-explanatory. Um, but pop culture criticism is like my hobby bread and butter, and I'm excited to talk about it with people who want to talk about it instead of put up with me talking about it. <laughs> Cool. Uh, well, we've got a good discussion ahead. We're talking about classism. Uh, we've got some homeworks that we assigned because we were really excited and loved them, and some homeworks that were assigned because uh, they were vehemently disagreed with, but might spark a conversation. Um, but before we get into any of that, uh, we start the show as usual with our stuck in our head. This is whatever piece of pop culture we want to talk about, what we've been thinking about, what's stuck in our head. Um, Martha, how about you kick us off? Okay, uh, well, I spent this last weekend at the Chicago Comics and Entertainment Expo, uh, also colloquially known as C2E2, which is my favorite con that I go to every year. Uh, and yesterday morning, I got to kick my day off by, or with a screening of short films um, made in honor of the Alien 40th anniversary, hmm. which is this year. Um, so these were four short films um, made by fans and for fans, but these were also uh, filmmakers that were chosen. Um, I assume some sort of contest or portfolio review was held um, because this whole endeavor was sponsored by Fox, um, approved by Fox. These were definitely professional level shorts. Uh, and I thought they were super rad. Uh, the first two were fairly typical, um, like, small group of panicked people out in space, one of which turns out to be infected, chaos and shenanigans ensue. Um, but the other two got into some weird stuff. And I, my happy place for the alien mythos is when it gets super weird. Uh, so I was really excited to see people, like, um, kind of playing with some of the possibilities that the xenomorphs present. Um, and I believe 
the full compilation that's going to be released is six shorts. So there are two yet that I have not seen. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to it. That's really cool. And Alien, I guess I didn't realize it was the 40th anniversary. Um, You tweeted about seeing that. And then today I was reading that some like high school put on a production of Alien or something. I also <laughs> I also tweeted that because I saw that on Reddit like two hours after I watched the shorts. But yeah, a New Jersey high school put on a play version of Alien and all of the costumes and sets were stuff they made themselves out of recycled materials. Oh, that's so cool. You can see clips. Wow. You can see clips of it on YouTube and it rules. <laughs> it's the coolest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. Well, and as an example of how this all infiltrates your subconscious, I was visiting my brothers this weekend, and we ended up talking about Alien without ever mentioning that it was the 40th anniversary. So I don't know if it had just somehow gotten into people's subconscious, or uh, it's really that prevalent, but... It attached to all of our faces and laid some eggs deep in our bodies. That's what we were talking about was the <laughs> facehugger! <laughs> Mind facehuggers. It's um, insidious. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Hannah, how about you? What's stuck in your head? Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is... Yay. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I, Brooklyn Nine-Nine has been stuck in my head for like a year and a half because one of my pet topics in all of pop culture criticism is bisexual erasure because it makes me feel feelings and it's very personal to me. Um, so I've been a huge fan of Brooklyn Nine-Nine for a while. Obviously, their whole Rosadia arc has been amazing. Um, we're a couple episodes behind, but I was just having a conversation again with my brothers this weekend, because this is what we do, um, about why I think it's such an amazing show. And, I, you know, one of the things we talked about a lot is how it's diverse in a more than tokenistic way. And mm -hmm. that's part of what makes it so great and allows it to do so many great jokes, right? Because they can make uh, jokes about Rosa Diaz or Captain Halt without being super homophobic because they don't expect either character to fully represent the queer community, right? Mm -hmm. They can make jokes involving Amy Santiago or Rosa Diaz that are not necessarily racist because they don't expect either character to represent the whole Latina community. Um, and so we were just talking about the reasons it's such a great show. And I, one of the things we hit on is that the like wealth of comedy they can delve into is so much more because it's, so diverse and so much more than tokenistically diverse and they incorporate writers um, and directors too who are part of these communities so um, Stephanie Beatrice who plays Rosa directed the he said she said episode which dealt a lot with um, sexual assault and and workplace sexual harassment and having being able to pull in this woman director from their cast really allowed them to delve into an issue without having to worry so much or, or screwing it up so much by having a male director. And so you should cast all your shows diversely because it makes Brooklyn Nine-Nine great was my takeaway. <laughs> yeah. This podcast loves Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, for reason, <laughs> um, I've never thought about it in that way, but I've, I've heard other people have similar um, takes on other media where it's like, like you said, having, not having one tokenistic character means that that person is not shouldering the load of an entire group. And so now you can delve into that. You can have multidimensional characters because it's not just the woman or the black guy. It's like, no, this is a fully fleshed out person. Um, exactly. Because they're not just the one. Exactly. What about you, Pete? Yeah. What's your stuck in your head? <laughs> so uh, what's stuck in my head is... 
on Wednesday, I went to a science on film screening, uh, which is a, I guess it's a national program partnership with some foundation where they have a guest lecturer talk about a topic and then screen a movie based on that topic. So the movie was Gattaca, um, a movie I haven't seen in years, but always had a fond memory I've, of it. I've never seen it. It's really I'm good. A terrible nerd. It, it aged well. Um, and and the, the I really like that movie. Yeah. Yeah. The, the speaker um, beforehand was talking about like genetics and CRISPR and and really interesting things there. Not the greatest speaker, but you know that's fine. I was mostly there for the movie anyway. Um, but as I was watching it, I thought that it would be kind of a good fit for this uh, this show or this you know this episode about classism because it changes what class looks like in a genetically modified society. Like obviously, it, it's dealing with a lot of um, moral issues and, and issues that we're probably going to be grappling with in the near future. But the idea of having, like, invalids and, like, hyper-valid genetic code creates a, an entirely different class structure. Um, that aside, what fascinated me most was uh, Jude Law was fourth build behind Alan Alda, which was very shocking to me. It's like, that. it was right before Jude Law popped, so he was just another name in the credits instead of, like, either top build or, like, last build with an and. Um, so... Listen, let us never forget that Alfie was a movie that Jude Law made. <laughs> right. Oh, and he played a rent boy in the Wild biopic starring Stephen Fry. Huh. The more you know. Yes. Well, cool. Yeah, so Gattaca's what's stuck in my head. I It had been a long time since I saw it. Really enjoyed it. Had some pro like, the way I remembered the third act ending was a little bit different, and I liked my uh, memory of it better than how it actually ended. Uh, my brother and I saw it, and we are talking about it afterwards, and we fixed it. Um, but for that, you can go to my Twitter. Um, <laughs> we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we're going to be delving into classism and... Uh, bringing up people such as Stephen Fry, uh, who were just mentioned. So stick around, <laughs> and we'll be right back. we're back uh so today we're talking about classism um we've got three very diverse homework assignments to be talking about uh but the wider discussion questions we're sort of thinking about during this discussion is um why is it helpful for us to examine these biases these class biases in such an exaggerated context um why is it aspirational or, or why is aspiration or like the aspirationalism such an important part of classism and uh, finally, two of our uh, assignments were uh, British, and so we're going to be thinking about, is British classism and the British view of class distinctly different or, or meaningfully different than the American view? And if so, how useful is it then to, um, you know, use British examples to view American society and vice versa? Um, 
let's start with the homework that got us thinking about this in the first place, which was Martha. Class. Yes. Uh, so I would actually like to start very quickly by defining classism. Cool. Um, not that I don't think our audience understands or knows what that means, but I think it might help us discussing it to just have sort of like a a crystallized vision of make what sure we're talking we're about here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, make, make sure, sure we're all on the same one. The, the dictionary.com definition that I'm looking at right now says, defines classism as prejudice against or in favor of people belonging to a particular social class. Do we agree? Yes, I might add to that. I feel like the power that that social class holds is also part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, um, unlike, I, I would say that classism to me feels different than um, a lot of the other negative isms, uh, racism, sexism, because I, I feel like unlike those, classism can work both ways, where you can have, I mean, making fun of the upper class is like punching up so that's different but it's still i'm gonna cut all that because the more i think about it the more i disagree with what i'm saying so i was gonna say you're treading real close to a reverse racism thing there right right right. and like once i got to the I punching I up like you're angle. getting that though which has to do with i think my question about aspiration and aspirationalism in that like classism in part is built on like that prejudice is reinforced even by people who are the underprivileged in this system. Yeah. Does does that seem like that's getting a little bit at what you're getting to? Yeah, yeah, kind of. And and also just like thinking of like your your um Bertie Wooster sort of portrayal. Um but yes. but but like but but still that, that's just that's punching up and punching up is fine. Um right. So yeah. So are we cool with this definition? Seems like a good definition of basis. Yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty bare bones, and I think that we're about to expand a lot on it. But as a sort of anchoring point, I think it works pretty well. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, well, then, Martha, do you want to start off with yours since it was sort of the the uh, assignment that got us to this topic? Yeah, sure. Oh, so also, I really I... want to talk about it. <laughs> yes. Um. So. Basically, yeah, we we came up with this topic by working backwards from the fact that I, when we started talking about this, I had just seen Sorry to Bother You, uh, which was a 2018 movie directed by Boots Riley, starring Lakeith Stanfeld, Tessa Thompson, and a whole bunch of other people. Um, and the basic plot, and I'm going to be pretty cagey on this because... If you haven't seen it, you really should, and I really don't want to spoil it for you. And it's a new enough movie. Um, exactly. But so the the basic premise of this is like Lakeith Stanfield plays a gentleman named Cassius Green, uh, who gets a job at a call center, um, selling products for different companies, and he is told by one of his coworkers that in order to be successful, he is going to have to perfect his white person voice, um, which is basically not just not just sounding like a white person but sounding like you don't need to make this sale like you're chill whatever happens like you you are self-assured and you know just kind of doing this for uh doing this for kicks um in a, in a way that um makes 
the person that you're calling for, like just sets them more at ease um, than basically uh, the way that his regular voice does. Um, and it turns out that Cassius is really good at white person voice. Um, and I'm going to pull his white person David voice Cross. is played by David Cross. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Patton Oswalt plays another one of the uh, white people voices. And I'd be hard-pressed to find two actors to better portray white person voice. That was Patton yes. Oswalt! <laughs> yes. That's clicking now. Um, so it turns out that Cassius is really good at that and starts making sales like crazy and gets moved up to the... What is the... Power yeah, he gets moved up to being a power caller, which basically means he gets moved out of this like cubicle farm call center up into where um, all of the nice office spaces. They put him in this really beautiful apartment. He starts making a lot of money that he shares with his uncle, who's played by Terry Crews. Um, Speaking of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yes. <laughs> basically becomes like sort of the the focus of this call center company um and starts to reap the benefits of that um and gets drawn more and more into uh this corporate um corporate world meanwhile the other important thing to know is that the rest of the call center employees are starting to or trying to unionize in order for all of them to get the same benefits and protections um there's a there's a, a picket line that starts happening um and cassius has to deal with the fact that he or he he is struggling with the fact that he needs the money and the opportunities that this job is providing uh, but in order to reap those benefits he is basically stepping on the other people who work in the call center um, many of which are his friends or related to him, um, in some manner or capacity. I, I really like this movie. Uh, it's weird in the best of ways. Um, and it's, it's unabashedly, like, political and left-leaning in its politics without being, um, like a diatribe. Uh, and the way, what you were talking about there, the way it sets up the, like, showing how the systems are in place to prevent worker solidarity by plucking out individuals and, and causing internal conflicts and everything else, uh, I think is really smart. Um, also in the background of all of this, there's, like, an Amazon-esque company that's, uh, offering its services, which is basically selling yourself into indentured servitude, um, and it, it just feels very, very much, like, relevant for, for the time. So I watched this today with my fiancé, um, and it's definitely weird, which is not normally my jam. So, you know, I did really like it a lot better than I thought. But one of the things I was talking to him about while we watched it was how this is one of those, like, near-future sci-fis or dystopias that's so close to our reality that's scary mm -hmm. because we're watching worry-free which is this amazon-esque corporation where basically their pit their, their cell is oh you know sign this and you don't have to worry about 
sleeping or eating or housing, you have a job guaranteed. And what, what they're not telling you, of course, is that it's indentured servitude to the worst degree and they treat their workers horribly. But like, it seemed so realistic that people would go for that, well, that it, it was terrifying to watch. And the other things like the way they, it looks is it looks like jail. Uh, and like, considering that, that imprisoned people end up like often have to work as well. Like it is the only difference between like, our world and that is that in that world you can sign up to be there uh, in a way that you can't really hear. But it's like, other than that, yep, kind of there. Well, Cash's <laughs> uncle, when he's thinking about it, you know, he says, oh, I'm, I'm so in debt. I can't, I can't keep out of my house. I don't know what I'm going to do. I owe too much. And he says, well, I've been thinking about this worry-free, you know, like we used to say three hots and a cot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and what he's referring to, of course, is prison. So it's very much related to the prison industrial complex. So, and and going back to to class, um, it not to get into the third act twist, which also like deals with classism. <laughs> but I feel like we can sidestep for this because uh, so much else is in just the first two acts. Um, right. Like it's it is a great portrayal like Cassius is obviously very good at what he does and reaps the success and the benefits from it but he's also not happy um necessarily like he's obviously more uh secure but um uh you know his, his happiness it like he he loses his friend he loses his girlfriend all the rest of it um and i think that that's a very common trope in especially american media the idea of getting rich doesn't solve your problems um i think it's really interesting i don't want to cut you off but mm -hmm. can we at least come back to the you're really interesting that you mentioned specifically american media in in that trope yeah because one of the things i noticed with all three of our assignments was that i felt like sorry to bother you was the only one that really actively challenged the idea that um moving up in class would make you happier Mm -hmm. Because I feel like Jesus and Wooster and Kingsman both kind of embrace the, if if you move up and out of being poor or, or being lower class, that's a good thing. Yeah. And, and I don't feel like either of those really challenge that. We're sorry to bother you really did. Well, and, and that's one of the things, that's one of the things that I really loved about Sorry to Bother You. I really, really deeply hate and I really hate the myth the bootstraps myth mm -hmm. that American culture is sort of founded on this idea that anybody can pull themselves up by their bootstraps and be successful. And all you have to do is try hard enough or want it more, which is complete and utter BS. Like that's just not how the world works, but it has led, I think to this very deep disdain that our culture has for people who are poor. Yes. Like, Oh, yeah. you're poor because you didn't, try hard enough or you didn't want to fix your circumstances or whatever when the the truth is that nobody nobody is successful alone and i really liked how directly sorry to bother you challenges this concept that it's possible to that like this the, the the underlying like ethos of the movie is solidarity and the importance of yes. solidarity. Because even even though Cassius is successful, I would say like he 
he doesn't figure out the white voice trick by himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets help. He gets help, and like his, you know, he is supported by his uncle and his girlfriend. Like he he has a support structure that kind of allows him to, to be successful. Right. He wouldn't even have this lousy telemarketing opportunity if, you know, his friend didn't get the job there. Yeah. And if, you know, he didn't have a place to stay. And so then when yeah. he turns his back on the rest of the call center, when he crosses the picket line while they're unionizing, it's like you don't get to reap the benefits that these other people helped you gain and then act like like act like this is nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also, like, I I feel like America is deeply schizophrenic about it because on the one hand, as you said, Martha, the founding mythos is like the Horatio Algiers bootstrap myth. And on the other hand, we have so much media where once you get rich, you're not happy. Um, and I think it's because there's a lot of resentment for people who, like, have gotten rich. So we want to tell ourselves stories where... Um, you know, like, yeah, they might have money and wealth and power and stuff, but, like, at least I'm happy. But we also have a lot of resentment towards poor people, so it's... I I think that we as a society are deeply broken about how to think about class, um, because we all are told that we should be reaching higher and higher, um, and so look down on those who haven't, but also so many of us haven't reached those upper echelons, so we need a way to explain to ourselves why that's fine. Well, and I think it's... I think it's important to note that the platonic ideal of American culture is middle class. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, not... Like, don't reach too far. Like, don't... Do you think that's still true? Don't reach too far. I I feel like that's, that's definitely the platonic ideal from, like, the 50s and 60s. But that's also because the upper echelon lived a life much closer to a middle class life. Um, I, I don't know if it's I have true no anymore. Idea. Yeah, I have no idea if it's true anymore. Um, I I hate the wealthy so much that I like can't be objective about <laughs> what our pop culture message is. Yeah, I also I think. Sorry. Finish. Oh, go ahead. I was and I also think that the wealthy have a vested interest in making sure that people think that being too wealthy makes you unhappy. Yep. Because then they can point to that and go, look at this burden that I'm bearing for you mm-hmm. so that you don't yes. have to. <laughs> yeah. It's so hard when you have to manage, you know, house pay, more, three mortgages and your boat payments and, 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 and your, just... you know. First class just, airline tickets, and <laughs> I just don't know what I'm going to do with all this money. So I guess I'll go to space. <laughs> uh, that or run for president as a centrist. So, uh, yeah. Um, how, how dare you bring a powered shuttle to this house? <laughs> that uh, that we're bringing up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, cool. I feel like, is there anything else we want to talk about specifically for Sorry to Bother You before we jump across the pond? I was going to say, I would like to, I would like to talk about our other stuff so that we can eventually get into the comparison of the bootstrap myth to the, 
the more British perspectives that we have. Cool. I think there's a lot there. I'm... I would like to circle back, but I think in order to do that, we must move forward first. Cool. Uh, on the one hand, the easy connection is to go bootstraps and Kingsman, but I want to do it instead by order of enjoyment. So, uh, Hannah, if you want to talk about <laughs> Jeeves and Wooster. <laughs> okay, so I will admit that I came to Jeeves and Wooster because Pete threw it off in one of our discussions before we decided on this, and I latched onto it because I love Jeeves and Wooster. But I've also spent the last few years recognizing how deeply problematic it can be while still loving it. A, um, a British comedy from the 90s is problematic? Who knew? So if you haven't seen it or read the books, Jeeves and Wooster is a TV series um, based off of novels by P.G. Wodehouse. They're set during some very nebulous between wars, roughly time period um, in England. So 20s, early 30s, um, featuring... Upper-class British gentleman Bertie Wooster, who has no profession and lives off of family money and is related to a lot of the peerage, although he is not a member himself, and his uh, butler Jeeves, who is continually getting him out of scrapes, which mostly involve having to do something for one of his aunts, um, ill-conceived marriage alliances, and possibly silver cow creamers. Um, (laughs) The episode we watched, The Purity of the Turf, Um, I chose in part because one of the two main plot lines involves Bertie's uncle George, who is a lord, Lord Yaxley, um, and he gets engaged to a tea shop waitress. And Bertie's terrible Aunt Agatha, the nephew crusher, um, demands that Bertie prevent the marriage, and through some ingenious contrivances of Jeeves's, Bertie introduces his uncle to the tea shop waitress's aunt, who turns out to be his uncle's long-lost love, was also a waitress um and so they do end up getting married it is a happily ever after but in you know sort of the world of Bertie's older aunts and uncles it's also a travesty um and it's interesting because it really although the books primarily are non not very critical the books or the tv of um what we think of as sort of the standards of british class at that time um this episode Basically, it is a happy ending, right? Uncle George and, and the um, of the people aunt get married. They're very happy. They've rediscovered their lost love. Bertie's very stuffy Aunt Agatha, who is of a previous generation, is disapproving. Whereas, you know, Bertie, who is of a newer generation, thinks it's just lovely that they found love. Um, so it sort of deals with class in that way, but also the, the context of the whole series and the whole book series is, of course, this boppish upper-class gentleman who's definitely dumb um, and constantly getting into scrapes is always rescued by his valet, Jeeves, or his butler, um, who has a strong feudal spirit and and firmly believes in the service sort of structure in England. So the series and episode as a whole are really built on classism and and sort of the, the service not industry, but um, service class in England at the time. Um, also, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's it's Hugh Laurie and uh, Stephen Fry, and they're great. Um, I, yes. and, and, if you're my fiance, yes, Hugh Laurie is British. He did this before <laughs> he was out. <laughs> the one thing I think of a lot with Jeeves and Wooster is a Monty Python sketch, a sketch for upper class twit of the year. 
um, because that is Wooster to a T. Um, the other thing is I really like the, like, it's a trope, and it might even be named after this, but the idea of the incredibly well-read, hyper-intelligent, uh, you know, body man, basically, person behind the power, um, who's getting the rich, powerful idiot out of scrapes. Um, and I think that speaks a lot to class in a weird way. Like, punching up and making fun of the rich is totally called for all the time, and so having, like, a nitwit, uh, you know, lordling is great. Um, but then the flip side of the hyper-competent, uh, incredibly erudite um, butler is sort of an interesting... Uh, like, it, it's weird how that fits within any sort of class critique or, or even discussion of classism. Well, especially because he's almost always primarily using that in service of this upper-class twit. Yes, yes. Like, get, like saving him from himself and being very humble about it. Yes. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I think is interesting about Jeeves and Booster, especially, you know, in relation to the other things that we watched is like i mentioned i don't think it's very um critical of aspirationalism and 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 the desire to move up class right there's a lot of plot lines and a lot of episodes that are based on lower class women who get to marry these upper class men hmm. um and generally speaking it's considered a very good thing for them with not a lot of criticism um, and, and on the other hand, though, I feel like that's the only way presented to move up. Like, like the the, the only way to move up is through marriage. Um, it's not the sorry to bother you, like work hard and get there, because like Jeeves is incredibly hardworking, <laughs> uh, right. but but would never think that he should move up in his station. Right, which is sort of a, a classism that's inherent in the media. Um, rather than something it portrays. Mm -hmm. I would say there's also, like, it feels very British, um, but I'm actually, I'm reading, oh, like, that, that whole idea of, like, names and bloodlines and peerage and... <laughs> There's the All good job that. with the joke with the tea shop waitress where it's like, oh, it's, it's Miss Westinghouse. Like, oh, the Cornish and Westinghouse or the yeah. London Westinghouse is like, well, neither, but okay. <laughs> sure, you think that. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Margaret. Um, but it, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm reading a YA novel about um, basically about Southern debutantes, which has all of that same stuff. So like the the idea of old money and you know your name and family being this kind of very be all end all and if if you're not born into it well <laughs> it doesn't count right um i am curious about what you guys think uh i i struggled <laughs> with jeeves and wooster for a couple of different reasons um, it's not really my brand of humor, and also, man, did they try to make two episodes, two half-hour episodes <laughs> into one hour-long episode. Um, I I felt kind of weird about um, this sort of idealizing of Jeeves, mm. like this this sort of inherent nobility in the lower class person and like of course he wouldn't 
try to rise above like of course he would do just as well as he can in his station but rising above that is not an option but he is the like the brains and all of it 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 felt almost like it's it felt almost like i was being told it's okay that he's lower class because he's really good at doing that um this is related i swear who is the butler in Downton Abbey? Like, what's what's that guy's name? I've uh, never watched Downton Abbey. Um. Well, I'm, I'm I'm getting a report from the newsroom. Uh, Mars <laughs> Marston Barston. Carson. Carson. Sure. <laughs> Carson. Carson. I was like, Mr. Bates is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But um, but I I feel like those portrayals are very similar Jeeves and Carson of just like like this is my my station I'm gonna do it the best I can and how dare you even suggest I don't do it or I try to rise above it and I feel like that's a very British and especially um maybe not current British but like British of that time period um sensibility uh and and that's one reason I wanted to bring up the idea of like differences of British and American portrayals Right. And that's kind of what I mean by the, the classism being inherent in the media is that, right, Jeeves and Wooster, the, the short stories in the novels were written during that time by an upper class Britishman with possible Nazi leanings. Ooh, yikes, um, don't tell me that. <laughs> and so it, it really isn't challenged in that. Um, so it's giving us sort of, uh, Jeeves and Wooster almost gives us, in addition to great classic British comedy, um, a snapshot of, of what classism really was like during that period, because we're seeing it, you know, I think in the show very much similarly to how it was written, which was not challenging those ideas. That just was what you expected mm-hmm. of, of well, these and, class relations. And the show is interesting. This particular episode is the only episode I've ever seen, but it was interesting because it has that very overt challenging to it. Like Wooster doesn't like he has no problem with his uncle wanting to marry this lower class woman like he thinks it's fine so it has a very direct kind of exaggerated challenge to that class to that classist system Mm -hmm. but then you also have this kind of noble servant character um that like uh jeeves's position is never challenged so you have the the um exaggerated challenge but then the sort of underlying relationship is never called into question Mm -hmm. well and i think that's related to the the underlying privilege of of classism right like like any other ism there there's a privilege and a non-privilege and if you're upper class if you're birdie you have the privilege of being very noble-minded and thinking, you know, your your lord uncle is welcome to marry this this barmaid, while never questioning the fact that your privilege and and your class privilege is what gives you access to a Jeeves. Well, well to literally, solve all your problems. Well, literally barging in on Jeeves's one night off at the bar yes. and like and making it work for him. Then I know it's your night off, Jeeves, but. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And Jeeves doesn't seem to mind. Yeah. In this yeah. in this sort of idyllic n- not obviously realistic world that we're portrayed with. I mean, 
Jason Wooster is, is a fantasy of a sort, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and it's a it's a fantasy that wants you to think that it's challenging these kind of outdated ideals, but is also reinforcing them. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Well, that seems to me like a good segue to our third and final homework. Uh, Pete, tell us about how Mark Miller hates poor people. Oh, don't worry. He also hates women. Um, Yes, accurate. Yeah. uh, So I assigned um, The Secret Service, colon, Kingsman, a graphic novel by Mark Millar that then got turned into a uh, movie. You're way more likely to have seen the movie. Um, Colin Firth was in it. Yeah, Colin Firth was in it. He did a way better job than the bland drawn dude in the comic um in your defense pete you initially suggested the movie and since we were watching two other things yes we suggested the graphic novel instead (laughs) right right and i I also i will also take the blame for this because i said maybe i'll hate the comic less and then i didn't so (laughs) but but it took less time to to consume so that's a win um i i was very upfront and i want to be upfront that i assigned this because i don't like it um, and I wanted to throw something in that was uh, at least a conversation starter. So um, I've I thought the first movie was both a rollicking good action flick and also deeply problematic in a lot of ways, especially how it deals with class. Um, and the graphic novel was mostly just deeply problematic in a lot of ways because um, it didn't have like Matthew Vaughn's um, cool action directing. Um, basic premise is a um, uh, lower class British youth, a chavy kind of guy, uh, gets picked up by his rich uncle and is turned into a James Bond spy. Um, there's a lot of, like, his uncle also came from, uh, lower class roots, but now is a super suave and debonair James Bond character. Um, there's lots of stuff, uh, about how, you know, you kind of need to look right and act right and talk right. Um, in order to to really fit in, um, Eggsy, the main character, is very skilled. Like he's passing his spy classes with very high marks, but he's still looked down upon by his uh, elite peers because you know he doesn't speak Latin and all the rest of it. Um, so on the one hand, you could read this as a like, oh no, it's like it's a good pull yourself out by your bootstraps. Even the poor can make something of themselves. Story, uh, and it's that. But also, anytime we go into the poorer sections where Eggsy's from, everyone else but him is just portrayed in the most heinous of lights. Um, yes. It's like his his mom is shacking up with someone that she's not married to, has a kid by him, he beats them both, as well as uh, Eggsy. Uh, they're just a bunch of hoodlums driving around, stealing cars and stuff. Uh, but then even his stepdad is a part of a hoodlum gang who, like, beats up uh, the Pakistani shopkeeper. Um... And so it's like, oh, you both are trying to say that the poor can make something of themselves, and also, oh, those lazy poor people. Um, which, to me, feels very American in a way, because that's, like, what we were just talking yes. about with Sorry to Bother You. Um, but it's also deeply infused with British class sensibilities, um, and and that's on both sides. Like, he's... Eggsy is definitely from a chavy culture, and and it's a very much a British lower class. Uh, so, uh, and this is all wrapped up in a stupid story about a rich dude trying to steal or kidnapping a bunch of celebrities because he's gonna 
killed the world for population control reasons. Uh, whatever, that part doesn't matter. Um, if you were wondering if if mark millar also hated you personally for being a millennial the answer is yes yes yes. almost certainly (laughs) or you know if he thinks that you're only there for sex because you're a woman the answer is also yes yes yeah women are either uh they're basically just prizes in mark millar world um he he writes for edgy teenage boys and it shows Um, but what did you guys think in terms of the class? Like, I... So here's the issue that I had, and maybe you guys can help me sort of better vocalize the issue. So Eggsy's uncle tells him several times, like, I know that you, like, where you come from doesn't define you. You can be, like, you don't have to succumb to crime you you can um you can rise above what your circumstances are but he also says be proud of where you came like don't forget where you came from and i had a really hard time reconciling the fact that his uncle was like be proud of like you can you can be whatever you want to be but only after I have like given you access to society and money and all of these things that most people in your circumstances don't have access to. So really not everyone can be better than they are. Yep. Yeah. It was, it was sort of the bootstrap myth, but like not. But also change everything about yourself. Well, and and a little bit of that old school British classism where really the only way to make it out of your class is through your connections rather than through your work. I mean, like we were talking about in Jeeves and Wooster, right? Mm -hmm. It's got like some combo of that bootstrap and that kind of old school, you need to know the right, not marry the right people, but know the right people to to move up. Well, and Martha, something you were just saying struck a chord with me where he's, there's really only one right kind of culture in this story like the yes the, the lower class culture is at every single point portrayed negatively so in order to like you can be whoever you want to be as long as it is the following thing um well and and not even just the lower class culture the self-made wealthy culture of the villain mm. is also i think mocked pretty vehemently yeah he's described as a guy who like goes to boardroom meetings and without shoes and socks and that's like heinous Uh, which is yeah like fair it's also a very it's a very specific silicon valley um callback yes i think yes like these kind of new money tech bros so it's like not only is there not only is there no good way to be poor but there's only one good way to be rich Mm -hmm. yes when we see that in one of the very early scenes with this Uncle Jack at this, you know, meal. And, and I mean, I did, I did read the scene a little satirically, but, right, Jack, this, like, the, the uncle, the, the super spy, is at this meal. And, and the guy said, well, can you get the halibut instead of the whatever the, the other fish The, the don't clearly like. more expensive fish, yeah. Yeah, and he says, oh, these cutbacks are killing me. So it's clear they're eating on, like, whatever, British Secret Service dime, MI6 dime. Um, and so, so to an extent, it's almost like there, there really is only one way to be rich. Because if you're like that guy, 
you're too rich mm-hmm. and you're too privileged. But if you're like the yeah the tech bro guy, you're you know not not classy enough. Yeah, you're, you and, you don't deserve it. Right, like it is. You're right. There's like one very very straight and narrow. And again, I feel like it's maybe influenced a little, you know, versus the the sort of 30s G's and Wooster by American bootstrap. Like you need to work hard, and you don't want to be too rich because that makes you sad. But it's still got that sort of British elitism of it's still better to be this classy rich and you still have to know the right people and do the right thing to get there Mm -hmm. i hadn't thought about the know the right people angle i was i was um this hits a little bit harder in the movie but uh colin firth keeps saying like manners maketh the man which i think is definitely an ethos for like that this is trying to push but it's a very specific kind of manners um and so I was looking at it at that angle but you're absolutely right that it's also like the only reason like Eggsy keeps getting in trouble with the law and going to jail and his uncle keeps breaking him out. This kid has had more chances than like Jared Kushner. Uh and has anybody had more chances than Jared Kushner? Right, exactly. And so it's like yeah, the only reason he's able to like rise up is because he is so deeply connected. Um you know, he, he gets into spy school even though everyone else has to be, like, secret service and getting top marks in school and all the rest. And he's like, yeah, I'm a high school dropout. But my uncle likes me, and I'm naturally very gifted, which is kind of a problematic, like, ethos. Yes. <laughs> well, um, it's, it's... Yeah, go ahead. It's Well, it's funny, because there's a way to portray that better, right? There's a way you can interrogate that. Um, I'm listening to Becoming by Michelle Obama right now because I finally got my audiobook. And I just, yeah, I know it's great. I just listened to a section where she was talking about being a recruiter for Sidley Austin, which is one of the biggest law firms, um, corporate law firms in the city of Chicago and how she really pushed hard for the idea that they needed to go beyond just looking at who went to the top law schools and had the top grades. If they wanted to be, Mm -hmm. you know, not missing out on great lawyers and recruiting a more diverse workforce. Mm -hmm. She pushed that they needed to, you know, not eliminate somebody just because they had a B on their transcript and to look at, Maybe people who went to not Ivy Leagues, but other good schools or, you know, historically black colleges. And so the thing is, there's a seed there of something you could do to really interrogate this system. It's just that Kingsman doesn't go for it. Uh, Mark Millar has never met an idea that he wants to interrogate in any meaningful way, I think. Um, anything else we want to talk about, uh, Kingsman specifically, before we segue into sort of our, our wider discussion? I think it's worth pointing out that I, I do think that Mark Millar has just as much um, contempt for the overly wealthy as he does for the poor. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, like, it, it's, he, he has this sort of idealized gentleman spy type, but also, like, the, the fact that the uncle character keeps reiterating, like, don't forget where you came from. Like, don't, you know, don't get suckered into thinking that you're actually wealthy. <laughs> well, and everything he has is provided to him by the government. Like his awesome apartment, pseudo apartment, whatever, is like a government issued, lovely pseudo apartment. So, um, and he talks a lot about like how service is so important and and anonymous service yeah. at that. So there are just there are a lot of layers of contempt here. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that he he had one line in there about like 
how the program accepted the finest men and women. And I was like, ballsy of you to say women and then not actually have any in your comic. I think there was one in the background. There was this blonde girl. Yeah. Who was, True. Yeah. And there was <laughs> a background lady in spy school. <laughs> she, I think she had one line and it was like, what are we doing? She had a line? Well, I, like, it was a, like, it was a drive the narrative line, not a make me a character yeah. line. It was like yep, a ten right. four good buddy kind of line. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It totally was. <laughs> Speaking of tokenism. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let, let's look at some of these bigger questions. Um, we've been talking a lot about the differences of British and American class. So do we want to sort of delve into that one? I specifically want to talk about how I think that we, and by I'm I'm using we in the broader sense I I feel like in American pop culture, there tends to be this sense of superiority to like other culture, like other um, other sources of pop culture, like our stuff is better or oh, like, um, like it's Canadian, it's Bollywood. It's not as good as American. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I. I think it's I think it's hilarious thinking about that. And then also thinking about the fact that we're really dealing with the same prejudices, just designed in different ways. Like we we've been talking about this myth of the boots, like the the bootstrap myth, which is very prevalent in American culture, but is also um, on display in Kingsman. It's just like you're pulling yourself by the bootstraps up to this already established echelon. Whereas in America, like in the American story, it's you're pulling yourself up by the bootstraps into your own, like into your own success rather than occupying Mm. a, a strata that is like already exists. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah. We we sort of see that with the CEO and, Sorry to bother you, right? His echelon of rich is just like nothing that we've ever seen, right? Yeah. 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 It's like his own thing. It's yeah. like I'm rich and I can do what I want. Whereas the British upper class is now I'm part of this upper class and I can be part of these norms. Is that what you're getting at? Yes. And also the idea of like that structures there i I really like the way you put it martha of um in america we pull ourselves into our own sort of personal success whereas in in britain we're pulling ourselves into a pre-existing class because like with jews and wooster that's at a time before the bootstraps myth was um like i don't want to say accepted but like part of just the british dna in the same way that it was part of the american dna then so the calcified, like, the, the social strata existed, there just wasn't the narrative of pull yourself up to the next rung. Um, whereas with Kingsman, like, that American idea has now jumped back across the pond and suffused the British idea, too. So the classes haven't changed, but the idea of mobility between them is what's new. I could right. be making that entirely up, but it sounds pretty good. <laughs> no, I think you're right, because I think that's kind of what uh, Martha was saying or what I was trying to to build on what she was saying anyways, if that's not what she was saying, is that in American or like, sorry to bother you, it's not about like, look at sorry to bother you. It's not about cash living the same lifestyle as 
all the people who are already up there in this power callers thing or this CEO. But it's about him making enough money to make his own mm-hmm. kind of upper class baller lifestyle, mm-hmm. right? It, with the car and the apartment. Whereas in something like Kingsman, it's about pulling yourself up to then emulate the class that's there or be part of that. Yeah. That, and, and, and emulate those behaviors and be like the other people. So how, like, is it useful to look at British media when thinking about class and classism because of that, because that social strata is baked so deeply into it, it, it makes it a distinctly different thing than American uh, views on it. Um, so d- does that lose some of the valence when we look at British things? I... I think that we just have to not fall into the trap of thinking that those prejudices don't also exist in our own culture. Cause like I said, I'm, I I think that you find a lot of that obsession with family and bloodlines and names in American culture as well. It's just in a slightly different format. Mm-hmm. So I, I think how many that Kennedys have, have to... been elected to various political it... positions. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I do think because again, we, we can never forget that we, we share a lot of DNA with Britain and British culture. Like it, it was pretty, it is and was pretty formative for us. So I think as long as we don't fall into the trap of thinking we're beyond this or we're better than this, there's a place for us to be in conversation with those biases and prejudices um, and kind of interrogate how our own, like how they're reflective of the stuff that we are also dealing with. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think a lot of um, American classism or or American society is still, it's reactive to British culture and society. Exactly. The difference of, okay, well, in America, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, or whether it's a similarity of, yeah, but we we still care if you dress right. I mean, even in Sorry to Bother You, as soon as he gets this power collar promotion, they're like, do you own a suit? Yeah. Well, of course he owns a suit. You know, there's still that expectation that even if you can kind of individualize your success, like, there's still those expectations, which I think are in large part based on this sort of British classism that's kind of in the... DNA of America, even if we are reactive to it or try to separate from it. Right, or, or pretend it's not there. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so you're just talking about, like, the, the when he becomes power caller and is like, do you have a suit? Um, that kind of, it works well enough that I'm going to segue into another one of our discussion questions, which is the idea of um, aspirationalism. And sort of why do we think it's such an important part of classism? We've been sort of talking around this. Um, I think Sorry to Bother You hits it the most. Like, it's the main one of the main focuses. Jeeves and Wooster almost ignores it entirely. Um, but it's it's definitely a part of American uh, myths of, of about class and, and success. So why do we think it is so important? So this is my question. So, so... Part of what I noticed when I was watching these three, all three of these things or, or reading them is that classism really only works if the people who aren't as high class want to be high class. 
right? That prejudice can still be there, but that prejudice loses a lot of its punch and its power if if the people who are of a lower class don't want to be of that higher class. And I mean, it's what we're talking about in terms of this this sort of almost bitterness of you can't be too rich, but really nobody would bother to worry about that if you didn't also kind of want to be, right? It's what you were saying, Pete. It's to make you kind of help you feel better about not being there. Um, and I think we see it even a little bit in Jeeves and Wooster, but from a different context where it's not so much that we see the aspirationalism of people who aren't high class is that everybody who is of these upper classes just assumes that everybody else wants to be there. And I think mm. that assumption of the upper class that everybody else wants to be there is just as important in terms of aspirationalism as actual aspiration. Um, but, but the assumption of aspirationalism, I think, is part of what allows classism to be a powerful force. And I do think we kind of see that across all three of these things. If Cassius doesn't want to have that nice car and have that apartment, he might have been happy just being a successful telemarketer, right? That would have been enough to, to pay his rent and help his uncle. But he, want, he aspires to this higher class. And Jeeves and Wooster, if they don't assume that the people who are lower class want to be part of the higher class, um, then it's not as big a deal if somebody wants to marry into that because part of what they're fighting against is presumption. And, you know, part of their power is, well, everybody wants to be part of this, so we have to protect it. Um, and obviously in Kingsman, we, we see it from both sides. We see it from Jack saying, well, I want you to get out of this lower class existence. And we see it from Eggsy who grabs at it. And I think that's where the power comes from. Classism, there's no power to classism if there's not aspiration. Sorry to bother you is an interesting bit because there's multiple aspirations happening. There's the, um, like the traditional aspirationalism of Cassius where it's like, yeah, get the car, get the, get the condo, get like, you know, the suit, money, money, money. Um, but then there's the aspiration of the workers, which is like earn a living wage, get health care, have a union, right. have lunch breaks. Um, and that's good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's it's such a different, um, it's like the collective aspiration versus the individual aspiration. And I think that um, this might be a difference of like, maybe it's not classism, maybe it's just capitalism, uh, but it's that the emphasis is always on the individual's aspiration um, that's a good thing, whereas the collective's aspiration is a scary thing. Um, this might be You're me right. reading way too hard into it and putting my political cards on the table, but... No, I think that that's true, because the aspirations of a group requires more... It requires more... Solidarity. resources than the ask well that too but also if you're only talking about making one person successful you need less than you do to make a bunch of people mm. like like yeah well and i mean you need fewer things to make one person wildly successful than you need to make a bunch of people mildly successful and, well, and, and so i mean Martha, you know this, you're a librarian, trying to coordinate a larger group of people towards anything, whether it's teenagers for a program, whether it's staff members for a recap project or whatever, like the more people you have to coordinate, the more difficult it becomes. So sometimes it's easier to just focus on that individual, like, I'm just going to do this. 
any meeting with more than three people is never going to happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so the more people you have to coordinate, the more difficult it is. So yes. it makes it easy to focus. And, and if we go back to sorry to bother you, it's very easy for Cassius to just do his thing. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder to be part of this bigger movement. True. But I guess I guess I was responding to what Pete was saying about how... Um, you know, meeting the needs of a group is more threatening to the company that's paying for it than it is to meet higher needs for an individual person. It's cheaper to pay off one person than to provide a living wage for all your workers. Precise. Yeah. So they, which means that they have a vested interest in fostering that sense of individualism with Cassius and isolating him from his uh, co-workers. Mm-hmm. Which turns out to be very easy to do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. I, I think we should segue into our last discussion question then and then sort of wrap up the conversation. Um, Sounds A lot of these, and especially Jeeves and Wooster, but um, all of them have some serious exaggerated... Well, <laughs> this discussion question is about exaggerated context, and I can't think of a more exaggerated context than sorry to bother you. But... Um, all three of these have some, like, huge exaggerations in terms of either the context or the way that they're portraying, um, you know, members of various classes. So uh, why is it helpful to use those, like, exaggerated caricatures um, when talking about this rather than just a, a more realistic interpretation or portrayal? Um, for me, thinking especially of Sorry to Bother You... Uh, Heightened comedy is a really good way to get people in the door and to get a conversation going. Um, and, you know, it's it's almost the, like, if this were just a rank propaganda film, there it wouldn't be as interesting and there wouldn't be as many people talking about it because you could just write it off as such. But, like, instead it's a bizarro comedy thing. <laughs> uh and now you're talking about this facet and that facet and the other facet and the white person voice. Oh, and also, by the way, look, it's about workers trying to unionize. So you can Trojan horse the ideas in a little bit better. Well, I think it's interesting you bring up comedy because I actually think all three of these are funny, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Sorry to bother you and Kingsman are definitely more dark comedy. And Kingsman is kind of terrible in a lot of ways. Yeah. But they're like, still both kind of a dark, but it's funny. It's, it's funny. It thinks it's funny for sure. <laughs> It's yeah. trying to be funny. It's utilizing comedy. And then Jeeves and Wooster is, of course, not even trying at commentary. It's more just straight-up comedy, but encapsulates it. But I think you're onto something that comedy or, or it is a gateway, and exaggeration allows us... I mean, even Jeeves and Wooster, it's funny because it's exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Right? There were upper-class twits and overly qualified, you know, um, people in the service profession, of course. but But not to the extent we see in that show. And and sorry to bother you, of course, that's clearly exaggerated for comedic effect with David Cross. Um, but it's effective because you're right, it's a gateway. So I guess I, I was the one that put this question on our docket. And I am wondering if you guys share my concern in that when something is so exaggerated or surreal it almost gives the viewer enough distance to not have to be reflective about it. Like I can see a space where somebody goes to see, sorry to bother you. And it doesn't occur to them to reflect on how 
the the things that happen in that story apply to reality because it's kind of so bonkers. I actually feel like it only gets that bonkers in the third act. I felt like the first two acts were very relatable. Well, but my fiance for a few months worked in Mm -hmm. not even telemarketing. He was like um, setting appointments in the just anyways, but he was working in a system where you had a call quota and you had to work with a lot of people. And like, we were watching this movie today and he's like, oh my God, I feel this so much. (laughs) So like, I really feel like it's only the third act that went off the, like in terms of realism really went off the rails. Like the rest of it was just exaggerated enough to make you kind of recognize it easily, but without taking away. And I think exaggeration sometimes does make it easier to recognize than something that's more subtle. I mm-hmm. I think you could make something that's too exaggerated to get its message across. But I also feel like right now a lot of our pop culture isn't grappling with this idea at all. Um and having something like Sorry to Bother You, which is exaggerated, but also like it's not hiding anything. Um and I think it would be hard to walk out of it and not have some thoughts uh, about how it connects to the, the, the current world. Um, so I, I, there's probably an upper limit, but I also think that like caricatures are effective. And if, if we were being oversaturated with works that were talking about classism in class and it was all over the discourse, um, then I would say like, hey, let's pull back from the exaggeration. Let's hone in on some more realistic portrayals. Um, but since that's kind of not there, um, the exaggeration is necessary to sort of like bulldoze or like wrecking ball into the conversation. That's a really good point. And and Martha, to your point, I actually think the third act of Sorry to Bother You does get into that too exaggerated and it makes it harder to relate to. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm also not into super weird surrealism. So. <laughs> no, the third act... The third act goes to some places, and if the first two acts hadn't been as strong as they were, I probably would not have enjoyed it as much. Yeah, I feel like the uh, first two acts were like the strength of the movie. Cool. Well, I think that's a good place to end this conversation at. Um, Hannah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, this was really fun. I got to watch something I probably wouldn't have watched otherwise that I'm glad I watched yeah. and read something that I definitely would have read otherwise. And I can't decide if I'm glad I read it. <laughs> it, it was the least I, thing you did. I appreciate getting to talk about all of this. Yeah. Um, do you want people to find you on the internet? And if so, where? Not at the moment. Cool. About half, about half our guests have that answer. Um, Martha, <laughs> tell you more later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Martha, I know you want people to find you on the internet. Yes, because I am a non-sensible person. Uh, you can find me at all the places at Magical Martha, uh, and you can subscribe to my newsletter, which is at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. Um, I believe my most recent issue was a meditation on all of my complicated feelings about Captain Marvel. Hmm. Ooh, we should have done a special episode just on that. Um, we can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, uh, politics, pop culture. Go check out uh, how I fixed the, how my brother and I fixed the third act problem of Gattaca. Um, 
You can find the show on Twitter at DYDYHpodcast. Um, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, look for Did You Do Your Homework Podcast. You can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. And we're also on Instagram now. Uh, I think it's also DYDYHpodcast. Correct. Great. Um, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Uh, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, what have you. Um, Martha, what are we talking about next week? Yes. Uh, next week, we will be talking about found family with our uh, very good friend, Sarah's husband, Joe. Uh, he has selected the the 1988 anime movie Akira. Um, I have selected the first volume of original flavor Runaways. Uh, subtitle is Pride and Joy. Uh, that's the Brian uh, K. Vaughn? By Brian K. Vaughn, yes. Let me just step all over you. <laughs> um, I'm really That's excited. Right. There have been, yeah, at this point, there have been a couple of different writers on that one. We are going with Original Flavor. If you want to get crazy and read Volume 2, you should go ahead and do that. Um, I'm just going to read it until I want to stop because I love those dang kids so much. I'm excited mm -hmm. you're assigning this because I haven't read it and I'm looking for an excuse. Um, I love them so much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm assigning some episodes of Firefly, a show that you've probably seen if you're listening to this podcast. Um, specifically, I'm assigning the first, eighth, and fourteenth episodes. Um, that's going to be uh, episode eight is Out of Gas. Episode fourteen is um, whichever one is Jubal early in it. Uh, Heart of Gold, maybe. Objects in space. Objects no, in object space. Objects in space. Objects in space. Uh, and then episode one is your pilot episode. So, um, and I'm not talking about Wash. So. Uh, that is going to do it for us this week. Thank you all so much for listening. We will talk to you in two weeks. Class dismissed.